McMaster has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at Mac, as we learn the moments that their path from Mac became unconventional. The wise Canadian sage Wayne Gretzky once said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. In this episode of Unconventional, we learn what happens when Mike Comito missed 100% of the calls you don't answer. Mike graduated from McMaster with a PhD in history, and while his day job at Cambrian College as the Director of Applied Research and Innovation may not seem to be the most direct path, we will learn how Mike employs the skills learned at Mac in an exciting career. Today, Mike juggles a busy career and family and still finds the time to write about his other passion, hockey. Mike's writing has appeared in Vice, Sportsnet, and he is the team historian for the Sudbury Wolves and a writer for the LA Kings. And if that wasn't enough, Mike's first book, Hockey 365, Daily Stories from the Ice, was published in 2018, and his second book will be released in early 2023. So um, let's go back to your undergraduate days and start off our conversation there. So you didn't do your your first degree at McMaster. So I want to ask you, when you were graduating with your um, first degree, did you have a master plan that you knew that you would eventually get your PhD at McMaster? Or what was your thought process when you were graduating um, at that time? I think when I was graduating, I probably did start to think at that point that I could have a future in academia. Um, I would say that when I went into university, um, I didn't have a plan. I kind of resisted going down the road of history because I was told by my guidance counselors at high school that there would be no job for me if I went and did a history degree. So I resisted that urge and I went into political science, which was not an area that I was passionate about. And after two years, I switched programs, um, but not after kind of going through a phase where I thought maybe university wasn't for me. I actually had a, a night where I said, I'm going to drop out. I'm going to go work for a mining contractor because I used to do that work in the summertime. It was, it was tough work, but I really enjoyed doing it. And I thought maybe that's just what I should do and stop what I was doing at university and then kind of found my path and got into history. And then by the end of undergrad, I think my marks had gone to the point where like my transcript, if you were to look at it, was like a hockey stick where they finally by year three uh, really kind of, I think they planed out and, you know, I had to take an additional year in my undergrad actually because of the first two years were a bit of a write-off. Um, but I think because of the encouragement and guidance I got from my professors at Laurentian, um, I started to see a master's as an opportunity in and around the end of uh, my undergrad. And then I think, of course, by the time I was into my master's program, um, that's kind of when I figured there's there's another step beyond this that I could that I could go after. And that's kind of how it happened. But certainly no master plan going into university, but I think kind of getting that validation in my later years of undergrad kind of made me realize that there was a potential opportunity for me to keep moving forward down, down the road of uh, pursuing history as a, as a career path. Well, Mike, I'm a fellow history grad, and I can certainly remember my counselor saying, why are you going to do that unless you want to be a teacher? It's like, well, yeah. there's lots of things you could do a history degree. So let's talk about your PhD in history. Like if someone came in and said, like, why on earth would you want to do that? Make the, make the case as to why someone should do their PhD in history and how it can turn into a pathway to a really interesting career. Yeah, well, I, I I was fortunate enough that I think doing my master's, uh, my supervisor was Mark Kuhlberg, who's you know become a good friend of mine over the years, just guiding me and giving me advice, and I think just being an all around good person. 
And he'd always told me that, you know, as much as you had your heart set on maybe going down the road of academia and, and getting a position as a professor, that that may not work out because there's not a lot of jobs for that type of position, especially for somebody like me who wanted to stay in Sudbury, where there's only one university in town. So, you know, there's not a lot of pick of jobs there. So he always said, market yourself as broadly as possible, that by getting a master's degree and getting a PhD, that even though, you know, that was setting you up for a potential career as a professor, you know, in, in, in the university setting, you were still developing critical thinking skills, communication skills, uh, the ability to synthesize large reams of data and, and explain that in plain language to somebody. Um, so I think that's kind of where I really still see the value of, of doing what I did at McMaster. I wouldn't change it. I mean, certainly I think I've arrived at a far different endpoint than I did when I started my PhD in, in September of 20, in 2010. But I think that all the things I learned at Mac, you know, through my courses, but also going through the intensive research process of getting a PhD um, has set me up like for the career that I have now. And I could honestly say that if I hadn't gone through the gauntlet, I think of getting the PhD, um, I, I don't know if I'd be here now in this position, maybe I'd be in a similar position, maybe not, but I think it provided me with the necessary skills to, I think, establish a, a place for myself in this world. And so I, again, uh, not exactly where I thought I would be, but I, I wouldn't change it. Um, and I think for somebody who likes to learn is always looking for new knowledge and, and new information, like obviously a PhD is, is the perfect fit for you because that's what you do for the entire time that you're there. But I think certainly, I think somebody who has the passion and the drive to really kind of, um, you know, sustain an independent project like a dissertation, um, it's, it's, it's a great fit for sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your um, what you're doing now, because it, it, to me, it's like a really interesting job. I think um, I went to Mac and I also went to Mohawk. I've worked at Mac and I worked at Mohawk. And I don't think people really think very much in the college sector in Ontario as much around like how much research and connection to uh, industry that colleges have. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about your uh, your day job? and um, you know, some of the things that you do and why it's important for us in Ontario. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I'm, so I'm the Director of Applied Research and Innovation here at Cambrian College in Sudbury. Cambrian's the largest college in Northern Ontario. And to be quite honest, when I started at Cambrian in 2016, I started as an Applied Research Developer, which was basically a job for brokering applied research projects between industry and community partners with the college. Um, so I guess maybe I should start with Applied Research because it's still, I think, in my mind, one of the best kept secrets in Canada, because when I started at Cambrian, as I was getting to that point, that I didn't know what applied research was. I was a product of the university system. I knew what kind of research we were doing at Mac, you know, in my space, but also in the, you know, health and sciences. Like there was obviously, you think of universities when you think of that kind of research. And so when this job became available at Cambrian, I kind of had to wrap my mind around well, what do, what do colleges do in the in the world of research? And so I quickly learned that applied research is, you know, tackling uh, a practical real world problem, oftentimes using the critical knowledge and you know equipment that we get from university based research, but applying that to solve that practical problem. And so I had to kind of learn and understand how the college fit into that space. But after doing this now for six plus years, you know, I've really started to realize just how important college applied research is not only to the students who work on those projects, they get the hands on skills, they're, you know, they're already learning this in the classroom, but the applied research projects really allow them to supercharge what they're learning in their shops and their labs by helping industry partners, 
either develop a prototype or make a process improvement or demonstrate a new technology or integrate a new piece of technology. So it's really great for the students because it gives them those tangible skills that employers are looking for when they graduate. But it also gives the industry partners and the companies and the community partners that we work with the chance to access, you know, specialized equipment to access a you know, skilled uh, uh, pipeline of, of student workers. Uh, also, there are faculty and our staff that are part of these projects. It really allows them to kind of use the college as their applied uh, as their R and D arm. A lot of these companies, you know, either don't have uh, the capital necessary to invest in equipment like this, or they don't have additional resources to take on R and D projects. They're focused on core business, so they can't take a project that's maybe five years down the road and divert core operations so that they could kind of get that moving. But they can come to a college like Cambrian. We could take a project that's maybe five years down the road and accelerate that for them. So maybe now it's a year or two out. They still focus on their critical business, but they get to move forward in that R&D uh, path, which in turn, you know, provides all sorts of spinoff benefits to the province. Uh, you know, hopefully that that innovation allows them to and, uh, you know, maybe reach new markets or unlock a new vertical, which all in turn comes back and benefits the province. But again, all of this was was brand new to me in 2016. Again, I was preparing for myself for a life in uh, university academia, and then I ended up at Cambrian. And again, it's uh, it's it's been such a great uh, experience here that uh, it, you know I, I had not thought about because when I enrolled in McMaster, you know, I thought I was going to end up at Laurentian in you know in a faculty role, and then I end up buying a house literally a five minute drive from Cambrian had never even crossed my mind as that was an opportunity for me, as a place for me to work. Um, but that's just how, you know, that's the, that's the knowledge gap that I think a lot of people still have when it comes to colleges, unless you've gone there uh, for a program or, you know, somebody that's gone there for a program or you've worked there, there's still kind of a black box and they do so much, uh, you know, for the economy in, in Ontario. And then I think for skills development uh, as well. And so I imagine it's probably, has it gone sort of like through the roof since you've been there of how much more industry or, or people are looking at the colleges? And the other thing that I think that the colleges do really well, and you would know this, is that they're very well connected to their community, mm -hmm. like really connected to their community. So have you seen that sort of evolve in your your tenure at Cambrian? Yeah, absolutely. There was there was definitely a, a like a, a sector wide push for colleges to do more applied research. You know, in two thousand nine, I think is really when when Cambrian kind of got into it, and that was deliberate because they were they they along with the other colleges in Ontario were pushed into it, and even nationally they were kind of pushed into it. They were always doing these types of activities, but I think it really be kind of it came kind of. Uh, there was parameters put around it at that time, but I think you know me coming on in twenty sixteen. Um, I think that was one of the key things that in in my role now, my role as director was, you know, the the PR campaign that we've had to do to alert people to what the college can do. Because again, even in our own community, which is not a large community, but people did not understand it. They were not aware that Cambrian had some of the tools and resources we had. And so I think as we've tried to focus deliberately on kind of opening people's eyes to the possibilities of working with Cambrian on a research project, that in turn has, I think, led to more demand because more people are just aware of it, right? We, we have a, a team within our department that does outreach in the community to tell people about this, but I think because now it's become more visible and more people are aware, it's certainly coming back the other way where we have people reaching out to us now. But I think that's also been happening, you know, not just here at Cambrian and Sudbury, but 
across the province as well. I think in the last, you know, five years, I think the colleges have all really taken a push to try to increase the visibility and showcase the resources and assets that are available. Uh, because again, we, we buy this equipment. Oftentimes it's funded by the federal and provincial governments. We want it to be used. The worst thing in the world is to buy a piece of equipment, have it sit there and become a really expensive, uh, you know, trophy that just collects dust. So I think that's, probably one of the best parts of the job is is having people come to the college see what's here and say we would love for you to use this on a project and we'd love a student to be the one to kind of drive that for you so so what do you think from your phd that you like what skills do you use every day in your job which people may not think that oh director of applied research and innovation how does that match up with your phd in 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 history and what what you skill set you took away from that well, initially, the reason I and he, I was told this, the reason I was initially hired uh, as an applied research developer at Cambrian was because I had, you know, uh, communication skills, primarily writing. Um, early on, when you're starting off applied research at the college level, you have to write a lot of grants, right? You have to write grants on behalf of your industry partners that you're working with. You often have to write grants on behalf of the college to procure new equipment or new investments to support projects. And so having somebody um, who can write uh, and edit and and read other, you know, do research and then also distill that down into a grant and have it make sense to a technical person who may be vetting the proposal, but also to, you know, somebody on the policy side who you has to make a decision on whether or not this should be funded. Um, that was, those were the critical skills that they were looking for in somebody like me. And I think while I don't write as many grants now as I used to as an applied research developer, I still write, you know, several grants a year. I have to communicate uh, across the board with, you know, students on our projects, faculty, staff, with the industry partners, with our funders, with government agencies. And so I think more than necessarily like and I more than the writing skills, which I still use quite a bit, it's I think the communication and being able to speak to different groups of people, right? I think it's knowing that I may have to speak to somebody in a boardroom one day, but I'm also on the shop floor later that day, having to figure out how we can fix our water jet cutter so that we can get back to work on our projects. And so I think having that awareness uh, of, of being able to, and, and skills to talk to different people, um, I think has been the biggest thing. And I think ultimately critical thinking as well. Um, in our in our line of work, we're on different projects. I'm not the one doing those projects, but I have to know, you know, what's happening on those projects and work with our, you know, our engineering groups and our students to kind of, you know, solve a challenge as it comes up. And so I think, those are the ones that have, I think, really allowed me to sustain, um, you know, my my role in this field. But I think certainly um, you have to be an effective communicator to to have the role that I have because uh, you just simply wouldn't be able to, I think, bring the type of partnerships back to the college if you weren't able to kind of walk between the range ops, so to speak, when you're talking to funders, industry partners, et cetera. Right. So. Yeah. So let's let's go back to sort of um, like in the last two, almost two and a half years, like we all got sent home in March 2020, knowing it would have expected to have a pandemic and many of us working hybridly and all the things that have happened in the world. But what have you learned about yourself through the pandemic that may have surprised you? So, yeah, the, the last two and a half years have been have been interesting for sure for everybody. But I think uh, in our household, so the day that Ontario went into its first lockdown was the day that we brought our second daughter home from the hospital. So I had, I had planned on taking a few days off work. Um, and then that day I had to go into the office and tell the team to pack up your stuff. Like we don't know when we're coming back. And you know, that we did not come back for probably a good year and a half for, for a lot of us. Right. Um, and so that was a whole interesting thing, trying to navigate a newborn at home with a, with a three-year-old, 
with a team that's never worked remotely before. Um, it was, it was challenging for sure. Um, I think what, you know, on a personal level, I've learned not to take anything for granted. I think our family was able to navigate, um, you know, COVID and we were thankful that we were, you know, for the most part, very healthy throughout this, uh, especially with our children. But I think even things where, you know, our parents, my parents and my in-laws have been really supportive with us since we've, well, since before we've had kids, but especially since we've had kids. And I think, you know, there was times during the pandemic where, you know, we were told to shut them out of the house because we had a newborn. And I think once you take away that support system, you really realize how valuable and, and important it is to you and how much you appreciate it. So I think that's definitely been, you know, one of the things that my wife and I have found is that just to not take anything for granted, we've been so fortunate, I think, to be able to have gone through what we've gone through and still have two healthy girls at the end of this, that I think that's front and center for me. But I think from a professional perspective, and maybe this is because I've had another kid and that's just a lot, I've had to kind of change the way that I do things, but I always used to operate that I had to get everything done, like the day that it was due. So like, there used to be nights when if I was writing a story outside of, you know, my, my nine to five at Cambrian, I wouldn't go to bed until it was done. So some nights I would go to bed at like 1231 o'clock and you know, you're, you're, you're tired the next day. And then I think with an extra child in the house, you realize that, you know, I can't keep that type of, uh, that activity up. So it's okay to go to bed at 10 o'clock with a story that's half done. It'll still be there tomorrow. You're not going to miss out on an opportunity because you stopped thinking about it. And so I think that's actually been something that I've really been much better at is just saying, I know I have this, I have to get it done by a certain date. I don't have to do it all today. And in fact, what I think I've been finding more over the last two years is that a lot of the writing that I do, the best time are when you're not even writing. It's when you're doing dishes or where you're out for a walk and you're just starting to think about things. So then when you sit down at the computer, you've got the idea that it starts to flow, right. Versus trying to get it all done. I have three hours. I have to do it right now. And so I think the time management, whether that's a product of, of COVID and, and trying to balance work and home life at home, or just, you know, having another child in the mix that you have to be more careful with your time. I just feel like from a professional perspective, I think I've been able to take a step back and say, I can prioritize the things that are important and, you know, and take the time when I need to, to, to do the other things in my life that are important. Yeah. And I think through the time, you know, most of us had not like people would work from home occasionally, but no one worked from home the way we do now and how people like that. And it's, and you know, no one taught me how to manage through a pandemic. So what do you think you learned about yourself as a manager through the time period? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's just, uh, you know, we've, I think we've all learned a lot about ourselves in our department having to kind of go through it alone for the first little bit, right? But I think it's just kind of knowing that people are often on an island in the first part of the pandemic that I think I spent a lot of my time just checking in on my people and making sure they were okay and just kind of going out of your way to make sure that we still were able to kind of capture, you know, some of the the elements that we had in the office remotely. And so... I think that's that's been the biggest thing for me. And not that we weren't doing that in the office, but I think it's another thing where you kind of take that for granted when you could just bump into somebody in the hallway and have a conversation. And so I think um, that's that's been a big thing is just trying to really, you know, know that the work doesn't get done without the people. And so you have to take care of your people. And I think that's hopefully been one of the things that uh, that I've taken away from all of this. And I think now that we're all back in the office um, with more regularity now than, you know, in the last two and a half years, I think you appreciate that more knowing that what we have as a team is, I think, really special and unique at the college. Um, and so I certainly don't take my team for granted because I wouldn't, uh, as much as I love doing applied research here at Cambrian College, if I didn't have the team that I have, I, I don't think I would be so effusive in my praise of applied research. I'm, I'm, I think, a product 
of the team that we have and the team that we've built. And so I think the pandemic has really kind of, again, not to take that for granted either, because without the team, we can't, we can't do the things that we do. Um, and I don't have a job. Yeah, that, that's exactly <laughs> true. And, you know, I mean, the pandemic is, you know, it's not that it, it's brought, you know, there's been lots of terrible things about the pandemic. But one thing is that it has allowed many of us to take a step back and think about what's most important and reset how much we how much time we spend at work. But I mean, you had a little one who really you went home right at the pandemic. So you've got to watch her grow up in a way that you wouldn't have before. Yeah. And that that is one of the things that I think my wife and I have been able to kind of we've taken a step back and looked at that because it's it is true that there's there would be days when you know, um, I would, you'd go to work and sometimes with a newborn, they're not, they're not awake yet. So you may not even see them at that time, depending on when their last feeding was, maybe they're down for their mid morning nap. And then you get home at the end of the day and you're just trying to get dinner organized. And then they're, they go to bed like two to three hours later. Right. So, but I think by being able to work from home, all the challenges, notwithstanding, you got those extra moments that you otherwise wouldn't get. Um, and I mean, I think even from like, for somebody like me, I don't travel a ton for work, but I, I do travel occasionally, not traveling for two years also gave me additional opportunities to, to be at home more often than I would. But certainly, yeah, I, I would agree that I think, you know, being able to take a break from work and then having your two kids there and just do something with them to reset before getting back into the next Zoom meeting. Um, you know, those are those moments that you obviously will never get again. And so I think I am quite thankful that I got to get those extra moments at home with them. Um, had, you know, had I been at work, I would have missed out on a lot of, you know, things that happened at home that I was, uh, really happy that I was, I was there for. Excellent. So you've got a busy life. You've got a growing family, you've got a busy job, but you also have sort of your, your hobby, which in some ways is another job. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? So you are, um, I guess I would best way to describe this. You're a hockey writer, right? Like, so you're, mm -hmm. You do work. Um, you've you've produced. You've written a book. Um, I've seen some videos with you, and I was doing a little research on on you. And you also, I believe, um, are the archivist for the Los Angeles Kings. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about like how do you go from PhD history to Cambrian to being a hockey writer? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's an interesting story for sure. Um, it starts with McMaster when I was finishing up my PhD. Um, you know, right around that time, it's when you started to see, you know, blogging became more of a, like an alternative forum for people to kind of get, you know, coverage of their favorite sports teams, or analysis of their of their favorite sports teams, right? This was right, especially in hockey. This was around the development of the advanced stats era. Again, advanced stats have been around in other sports like baseball for quite some time. Hockey, a very different sport, but we started to see other ways of kind of uh, understanding performance on the ice. And so with the rise of, of, I think, those new metrics coupled with the rise of blogging, um, there was now a whole world where people who previously didn't have, you know, a voice, so to speak, you know, could kind of you know, talk about uh, what they saw in their, their favorite, the teams they covered, the players that they covered. And so I kind of came at it from the perspective, well, you know, I'm not going to necessarily be the one who's going to write about, you know, goal differential and whether or not this, this player is effective at suppressing shots. But what I could do is kind of talk about history and hockey. And I started just blogging about, I was tying in uh, my predictions for hockey games with, uh, with moments in Canadian history. So I'd say like on this day, in 1929, Canada signed the Statute of Westminster. And tonight, you can watch the Canucks play the Leafs. And here's my, you know, perspective on the games. And so it was kind of this Frankenstein mishmash of hockey and history. 
I did that for several years at a number of different sites, my local newspaper, but also I was doing it for a Los Angeles Kings fan blog. I was getting paid in t-shirts. Um, so there was no money exchanged with a lot of these <laughs> early opportunities. And then after I kind of realized that this is a fun exercise for me, but like, I'm never going to, you know, make it mainstream. If this is my shtick is just like tying historical moments with like on the ice games that have nothing to do with them. I figured hockey history, that makes too much sense now. I mean, I should have thought about that before I started my PhD, but then again, maybe none of this would happen because it would have been like a job instead of being a creative outlet that it was. And so from there, I just started to focus exclusively on hockey history. Um, that kind of led to some opportunities with uh, more mainstream outlets like Sportsnet and Vice Sports. Uh, and then I started doing some writing for the Los Angeles Kings um, in 2018 I became the team historian for the Sudbury Wolves right around the same time. Uh, and then, yeah, the first book, Hockey 365, came out in 2018. The second one came out uh, this past September. I'm working on another one now that's exclusively about the Leafs. It's called Leafs 365. So that'll either, uh, it's going to alienate a significant hockey fan base, but also in, endear myself to the to the Leafs nation of the world. Um, but but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started was just, I think I was looking for a creative outlet that was different from the type of peer reviewed academic writing that I was doing, but something that, you know, kind of connected me to a sport that I was, uh, that I closely followed and, and watched. Right. And so uh, I, I had no idea that it would really lead to the opportunities that I've had. I certainly didn't think my first book would have been a hockey book, nor did I think that I would work for an NHL team in a writing capacity, nor did I think I would have a local opportunity with my, uh, with, with Sudbury Wolves here as the team historian. Um, so it's just kind of one of those things that kind of just, I think you never know where it's going to go. And I was open to the, uh, to the opportunities that kind of came along the way. Um, and, and, and here we are now. So how, how do you, how do you balance that? Right? Like you've got a busy life. So how have you, how do you balance that passion you have, um, with your everyday life? That's a good question. I mean, I think early on when I started getting into it, we didn't have kids. So it was a lot easier to find these moments to, to do the writing. And that's where I think. I was able to build up the portfolio. Um, although a lot of that early writing that I was doing with sports and advice, like my first daughter Zoe had been born. And so I still was doing a lot of that writing on the side, but I think, you know, to your point earlier, like it, it is my hobby, so to speak, but it is, it is work. Um, but it's kind of like, I'll find those moments and I'll do the writing there. Um, I would say that I think I also have a very understanding uh, employer in Cambrian that they're supportive of the work that I do. Certainly, I, I do my writing on my own time, but uh, but there's been moments where if, if it makes sense for me to take a, a call from a former NHL player at lunch or on a break, like there's there's no issues doing that, right? So at least I can kind of get the interview done. And then at night when I get home after the girls go to bed, you know, transcribe it, write it up. Um, you know, I think it's also for having a very patient, understanding wife who affords me the opportunities to take time and get the writing done. So I think it's, it has been all about that work-life balance. I think I've always been pretty good at organizing myself going back to, you know, my university days being a varsity swimmer and trying to organize training and competition time around getting all my work done. And so I think that's been a hallmark of my life since then. Um, but certainly, um, I could be as organized as I want, but without, I think the accommodation from at, at home and at work, um, you know, none of this happens. So nice segue, Mike. So you, you once missed a call from the most famous hockey player on the planet. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about your interaction with the great one himself, Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. So I, uh, I screened, I screened the great one. That's, uh, that's my, uh, that's my claim to fame with Wayne Gretzky is this was going back. I think this was my, uh, 
my second season writing for the LA Kings. And it was, it was coming up to the 25th anniversary of Wayne Gretzky scored the goal to pass Gordie Howe for the NHL all-time record for most goals. And so I tried to interview Wayne Gretzky in the past, um, never had any luck at that time. You know, he's now on TV doing stuff for TNT, but at the time when I was looking to interview him, he had a role with the Edmonton Oilers, but he wasn't doing a lot of interviews at the time. So I had been denied in the past that, you know, he wasn't interested in talking to me or they were going to pass on the opportunity. But this time around, I said to the Kings, you know, it would be really cool for the 25th anniversary, the silver anniversary that we actually talked to Wayne Gretzky to get his perspective on that milestone. And they said, you know, don't get your hopes up. Doesn't do a lot of interviews, but you can ask. So um, my, uh, my editor at the time, Robin emailed the Oilers and, and said, you know, we have a writer who wants to interview, you know, Wayne Gretzky for this story. And then they got back to her and said, Wayne will call Mike tomorrow. And I was like, we'd had no timelines. Wayne's going to call Mike. So that sounds great. That day, my daughter was home sick from daycare. So I was, I took the morning shift and I'm just thinking like, please don't call me while like my two-year-old is, uh, is, is sick at home and I've got to take care of her, but also like go on the phone and like, and like turn on my tape recorder and try to talk to you meaningfully for a half hour. So nothing happens in the morning. I go to, I go into work. My father-in-law relieves me. Um, but then I go to a lunch meeting with a client I've never met before. And the lunch starts off great. Um, you know, she, she admits that she's not a huge hockey fan, but we were talking about sports for whatever reason, at the beginning of the call, I didn't bring up that I write for the LA Kings or I do local writing for the Sudbury Wolves. And so I'm waiting for my phone to ring thinking like, please God, don't let this happen during lunch. We get to the end of the meeting and we're kind of talking about next steps as we wait for the check to arrive and my phone rings. And it obviously doesn't say Wayne Gretzky because he's never called me before, but it says Thousand Oaks, California. And I say to myself, like, this is the call I was waiting for. I have two options. I can either run to the bathroom in this restaurant and you know, take out my tape recorder and, and do a call from the bathroom stall, which, you know, sounds like it's gonna be an awful <laughs> idea. Or And then, and then of course I leave the table for 20 minutes and they ask me like, what happened to you? Is it something you ate? Like what's going on? Cause they weren't going to believe me that Wayne Gretzky was calling me because there was no context for them to understand why that would actually even happen in my life. So I made the decision to put my phone back in my pocket, probably turn into a zombie for the rest of the meeting. Just thinking about how the hell am I going to get Wayne Gretzky back on the phone? I drive back to Cambrian. I call him when I park, doesn't answer. I think this is it. I blew my one chance with a great one. Uh, but of course, there's a reason why they call him the great one. He's not only great on the ice, but he's also a pretty gracious guy. He called me back. I did the phone call from my office, ended up writing that story, but also the story that I just told you about the whole, uh, you know, the whole ordeal of trying to get him on the phone. And, and it's funny. And I think this is why I'm so appreciative of, of Cambrian, like allowing me to kind of pursue these, these passion projects on the side is that, when I told my boss and some other colleagues that I did this, they're like, you're an idiot. Like you should have picked up the phone. And I mean, logistically, it still didn't make sense to take the call from the restaurant, but I've learned that if Wayne Gretzky calls you, it's okay to pick up the phone call at work. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, not very many people get to chat with him and stuff. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that was a great experience. And next time you will pick up that, um, that call. Um, but why would the LA Kings need a writer? Like maybe, maybe explain to me, I would assume that they would, they would, most hockey clubs would have someone writing, or is this something that's new within the hockey world? No. So they, they definitely have a team of writers and actually the LA Kings are kind of a unique uh, case because they have what's known as like LA Kings insider. That's their job is really kind of focused on the day to day in and out of the team. It's kind of like a beat writer that you would see that follow teams around for local newspapers, but it's a person who's with the organization it's separate from the King's official website, but it's still 
they've got a lot of staff that, that do stories outside of that role. But the, the way it happened was funny enough, like through a podcast, I was on a, on the official podcast of the LA Kings kind of talking about how, when I was finishing up my PhD, I'd emailed probably majority of the NHL teams in the league and said, do you have the need for a team historian? Because I'm your guy if you do. And so I, I recounted that story and how every team basically told me, no, we don't need one. Or, or some of them did in fact have a person that did that role. So I kind of said that story on the podcast. And then when the podcast was promoted on Twitter, I reiterated that story again about how like all these NHL teams told me they didn't need a team historian. And then for whatever reason, the LA Kings official Twitter accounts replied to my tweet and said, we didn't get a message from you. Um, of course they did. And I did talk to somebody at the Kings who told me that they didn't need a team historian. Um, but I wasn't <laughs> about to say that online. So I just said, please. I, so I, I think I said to them, let me know, like happy to chat whenever we started to talk offline. And that's how it started was the history approach, right? Because they certainly had their, their team of writers who focused on the day-to-day on ice activities, like what was going on after games, before games, you know, outside of the games, but they didn't really have the bandwidth, I think, to kind of go after those stories that I think I was interested in. Like, what was the deal when, you know, Bernie Nichols scored five goals in a game in 19, you know, 91. Why, like, why is that important? Or why is that interesting? So they really kind of let me loose on those types of stories, but even over the years, like I've, I've not just done history stories. I think they've kind of allowed me to kind of explore other things I'm interested in. I've done some writing about prospects that the LA Kings have that play, you know, in the Ontario Hockey League, but also just stories about people who are committed to the Kings. I, I did a story about a teacher who is a diehard Kings fan and how he incorporated that into his teaching as part of, you know, a teacher appreciation week in the States last year. So, but that's how it started. It was just, honestly, I, I, tried to get some opportunities. It didn't turn out uh, initially, but, you know, months and months later, when I reiterated that story, uh, it led to an opportunity with the Kings. And to this day, I'm still working for them as a writer. Uh, I've, I think I've penned almost 60 stories now for them. Um, but again, that doesn't happen without, uh, without Twitter or without at least uh, trying if, at first by, uh, by seeing if there was a role like that. So have you, how do you appreciate professional sports now? Like, do you, do you have a different uh, view of professional sports now that you've sort of, you're in that sort of realm? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that think that, oh, their lives are so much easy. They've got everything, you know, straightened out or they get their life is planned out for them. Like, do you have a different appreciation for professional sports? I think it's now I'm always, uh, you're, I'm always thinking of like different angles of like, how could this be a story or like, this game is interesting, but like, what would the questions be that I would ask the players after the game? Uh, to try to get, you know, a different angle on that coverage, right? And so I think that's kind of, you know, how how I've kind of approached it. But certainly I think from a different perspective, um, I'd always kind of looked at, oh, it'd be great to be a hockey writer, um, you know, and and I'd love to do that as a job. And then I think over the past couple of years in particular, especially with the pandemic, I think you realize that sure it's it's i'm sure it's great to be able to cover a, a sport for a living but i think i've seen enough people kind of go through uh the layoffs and and the precariousness of the industry that i think you start to realize that you know maybe the situation i have that i'm in where it's a hobby for me or it's a passion project for me like that's that's a safe that's a safe approach um but certainly i think by being able to be in the world so to speak like even in that in the half measure that i'm in um, I, I do certainly think I appreciate it more, but I think I'm always trying to find 
you know, how can I turn this into a story or what is the tweet that I could take away from this game that somebody else hasn't thought of yet? Cause certainly everyone's, you know, there's, everyone has a different angle. Mine is the history, but, uh, but I think it's always just trying to find, uh, find that story and, and see if you can capitalize on it. So let's look ahead um, for your life in five years. Where do you think you'll be professionally in five years? Um, to be honest, I think in five years, I would, probably still be here as the director if everything goes well, presumably. Um, I think we've done a lot of great work in the last, you know, four years building the team that we have, but I think for us to continue to do the good work that we're trying to do at Cambrian, um, there's a lot of work that is ahead, right? I think it's about sustaining uh, the activities and sustaining the team. And so I think that um, as somebody who's, I think I'm not certainly a, a spring chicken, but I think I'm still pretty early into my career that I, I think that I would still want some more seasoning as a manager at this level. Um, I'd want some more experience to really establish myself, hopefully as a leader in college applied research here in Ontario. So I think within five years, I would still, I would still envision myself being here. I think beyond that, that's a different conversation because I think at that point, if we're, if I'm here in another five years, I've been in this role now, by that point, it'll be, you know, almost, I guess, almost, uh, 10 years or so. And I think by that point, I would probably want some new challenges and new opportunities. But I think certainly five years from now, um, I, I would hopefully still be the director of applied research Cambrian, maybe with some more activities under my belt to talk about new sectors we've gone into, new companies we worked with. But certainly, I think uh, from my professional development perspective, I would see myself still here um, at, at that time. And how many books do you think you'll have written between in the next five years. So you've written three, right? You said the, the your next book's coming out in, in September mm-hmm. around the Leafs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, do you, do you have plans for another couple or? Yeah, I think that, because I was, I was going to give you the other answer of where do I think I'll be on the hockey side of things is that, um, so the, the first two books that I have are, they're called Hockey 365. And they're now, after the second one came out, we called it the second period. So the first one has been restylized as the as the first period when we get into a new print run of those ones. And so logically, I have to do the third period just to complete regulation, whether or not we want to do overtime and double overtime and sudden death and shoot out whatever you want to call it. There's there's plenty of hockey history to go around. But I think for me, I would think that in five years time from now, I will have the third period complete. Um, obviously, the Leafs 365 comes out. Uh, this uh, September of 2023. Um, so I think I would be happy with probably one more book in that next five year span. But I think I've really enjoyed the process of, of doing Leafs 365. It'll be a little bit shorter than the other versions. Um, so I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that there could be a, a Bruins 365 or a Canadian 365 in five years to kind of go along with the third period. But we'll see. We'll kind of see what the response is to Leafs 365. Um, <laughs> I also know that me kind of dipping my toe into a franchise that I'm not a fan of may be more challenging than I think. I think certainly when I'm writing about the Leafs, I can draw from my own memories as a kid and, you know, the stuff that I've read about over the years. But uh, but going into a, a franchise that I didn't follow closely uh, might prove more challenging than I think. But I think there's a there's a market out there for for fans of those teams that want that history to focus on those teams exclusively. Excellent. So as we sort of wrap up, we, we have a series of um, rapid fire questions. So I'm just going to fire a few away at you. Um, favorite memory of McMaster? Ah, oh, that is a great question. Um, to be honest, I like going to football games. My wife and I went to a few of those and those were, those were fun for me because 
I'd never, you know, I was at Laurentian for my undergrad and my master's and we didn't have a lot of varsity sports. We certainly didn't have football. And so I think to see just, I think the level of play that you get, uh, you know, from a team like Mac, who's obviously been, you know, at the top of the heap for, for a number of years at, at various times, but to see the support um, that you get at, at like going out to these games and seeing how many fans there are. Like, I think that was cool for me. I think it was just kind of like a realization that I'm at a school that's as, you know, renowned as McMaster. Um, yeah. Like I think that those memories stick out for me. I mean, certainly I think being able to go to the Phoenix pub after I defended my dissertation um, and, and getting that first drink, I think that was certainly a, a special <laughs> moment as well. So I think going back and doing all of those things, but I think just, just being there, um, I think I really did have an appreciation. Um, you know, I love my alma maters, like both of them. I love Laurentian because it set me up for the path that led me to McMaster, that led me to my job. But I did find that going to my undergrad at LU, and maybe it was because I was a, a townie, I, I lived in Sudbury when I went there, there wasn't a lot of school pride. Like you didn't see a lot of people wearing Laurentian gear or talking about Laurentian when they were outside of school. But at Mac, like I was proud to be at Mac, like everybody, you saw a lot of burgundy, a lot of Mac sweaters walking around campus. I think the campus itself, you can't help but get caught up in it. So I think that gave me an appreciation for when I went back to Sudbury that, you know, when I was out and about and I was working at Laurentian or, or I was just on campus doing work in the library, like I like I was proud of, of being at Mac, but I was also proud of being at Laurentian. And so um, I think being at Mac kind of put things into perspective for me that just because, you know, Laurentian doesn't necessarily have, I think, the same story campus that that Mac does. I think it put a lot of things into perspective for me um, and it gave me a better appreciation for not only Mac, but, but Laurentian. But that was a long rambling way from where we started off with football games to. But those are just kind of some of the things that I have. I just, again, just love the first few visits coming to campus and just trying to, you know, acclimate myself and just kind of getting caught up in the architecture and just saying, like, wow, like, I'm here. I actually go to this school now. And it was just a really fun moment. We do have a beautiful campus. So yeah. what's your, what's your best COVID purchase? Uh, um, best COVID purchase. I purchased what is called a, a super deaker and it was a, it's a hockey, it's a game. It's a hockey game where you it's, it's like has simulated ice. You put it on the floor. It has a puck that has uh, like some sort of sensor in it. And then these lights come on the board and you have to stick handle the puck over the lights and the lights keep moving around the board. So it's meant to, to help you hone your stick handling skills. It was definitely an impulse buy at the beginning of the pandemic. My wife is looking for all sorts of reasons for us to get out of the house. Uh, but I think that was one of the ones where like, it was, uh, it, it was good. We used it a lot, my daughter and I as well. Um, that was probably the best purchase I made. That was early on. I think I smartened up over the last two years that less, less of those types of purchases. I think we all have those in our in our garages and are in our homes. Yeah. Um, you're a writer for your uh, for your hobby and stuff, but do you find time to to read? Like, is there a book you're reading right now you'd recommend, or maybe a podcast you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, I still make time to to read, um, and I try to read everything, not just hockey, um, because I feel like to be a good writer, you have to you have to read a lot. You have to be a good reader. Um, so actually, I just finished The Martian. Um, this week uh, by Andy Weir. I, I hadn't seen the movie before, so I thought this would be a great summer to finally read the book and then watch the movie. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. I, I definitely do tend to kind of lean towards a lot of nonfiction, but I've been on a, a fiction kick this summer. Um, I'm now reading uh, Bad Blood, which is about uh, Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos uh, scandal. We'd finished the, the series on Disney Plus, and so I, I want to get the full story now, so I'm reading that book. 
Um, as far as podcasts, um, I'll shamelessly plug my podcast, The Unlikely Innovators. Um, I don't listen to it, but uh, but I, I have the privilege of doing that here at work at Cambrian. We've had the chance to interview uh, some great guests over the years, like like or over the year, I should say. We've only been doing it for a year. Um, Chris Hadfield's been on it uh, to, to name and to name a few, but. Um, I really like the Dave Chang podcast. Um, I like to cook. I'm the primary uh, chef in the house. So I really enjoy his podcast because I'm a big fan of, of what he's done in the in the restaurant industry. Uh, but I also just it's a it's a funny podcast. I'm uh, it's it's not suitable for for small children. So it's kind of one of those ones you have to wear with uh, with headphones on if you're doing it while you're cooking or doing the dishes. Um, but I love his perspective. And uh yeah, so I would say definitely doing a lot of reading, but Dave Chang podcast is probably my favorite non-hockey podcast I listen to. Okay, so then like, okay, what's your go-to meal then? If you're going to cook, if you're going to whip up something, what would it be? Um, I would say my girls are big pasta eaters. And so I do, uh, I do, I, I think, well, I mean, they eat it. So it's obviously good in their minds, but a, a, a good uh a carbonara. So that's probably a frequent one. We also do a, a mushroom pasta, like a mushroom based, uh, cream sauce. Um, steak is also another good one. I feel like that's a, that's a recurring one when we have guests over. Um, but it's a, it's a tough one because I think we've now there's, we do a peppercorn sauce or I do a peppercorn sauce that goes with it. So it's never just cooking the steak. It's like, you've got to have all the accoutrement on the side. And so it's a big undertaking. I say that because we have people coming over, you know, the day after we're recording this and I'm already gearing up for the many, many pots and pans that will be around the kitchen that night to make it happen. But, you know, it always turns out nice, hopefully. And so I think it's, it's always, I, I enjoy doing it. So I have no complaints. Um, and one song that best describes your time at McMaster. Oh, there was, uh, there, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it best describes my time, but I, there was a band called the white lies and, uh, for whatever reason, I was listening to that album early on. I forget the name of the album right now, um, but it, it was it, there were there were moments in my first year where I wasn't sure if like this was going to be like, did I make the right choice? Should I be doing a PhD? I think these are questions that people that go through graduate school grapple with all the time. So I don't think it's necessarily unique. But for whatever reason, whenever I hear that album by the White Lies, I uh and I wish I could, I wish I could remember the name because why bring it up if you can't remember, but, uh, but that always just kind of takes me back to that first year or so where it was a little precarious, maybe not in a good way, but I think now that I've been able to, that I finished it and I have the degree, I can kind of look back and say, yes, this takes me back to maybe some darker moments in, in my the early stages of my PhD, but it definitely transports me back to being at Mac. And at least now that I know that I made it through to the other side, I can listen to that album and not kind of get, uh, get drawn back into maybe some of those more scary moments that I had thinking like, what am I doing here? So. <laughs> all right. We're going to end with the biggest question of all. Will the Leafs win the cup this year? Oh, I feel like every year I say yes. Um, and, and, and they never do. Um, you know, so, but I, again, I'm i uh, I'm a Leafs fan in my bones and I have a book called Leaf 365 coming out. So I am, I'm hopeful that I have to do some serious last minute editing in June of 2023, because I have to go back and, and add a couple stories about the Leafs winning the cup in June of 2023. So I will say June, 2023 is the year. Let's go. Um, we can go, always go back and people can take that clip that I was wrong or, or I was right. But yeah, you heard it, you heard it here first. Leafs win this year. Mm -hmm.